morning. So every year, as we have been doing the summer psalms, preaching through the psalms, uh, rather than doing 119th psalm, because it's crazy long in one go, we've been doing a little bit each summer. So this summer, uh, we're going to be there again, of course, and we're going to be starting in verse 81 of Psalm 119, so find your way there. And as you're making your way there, let me just tell you, Psalm 119 is a perfect acrostic, absolutely uh, perfect. And, and what I mean is, remember when we looked at uh, Psalm 25, there were, some, there were a couple things where the letters didn't quite match up and two letters were missing, things like that. Uh, when it comes to 119, there are 176 total verses uh, divided into 22 stanzas, and each of those stanzas is, is eight. Uh, there, there's eight verses in them. But those 22 stanzas represent the 22 Hebrew letters Four less than we have in English, but the, the 22 letters. Uh, and each of those stanzas consists of eight verses, and every verse begins with a letter of that stanza, right? So uh, today our, our stanzas are, are the letter Kof, uh, and Kof looks like a backwards C, I guess. Is that a backwards C for you? Um, and, and Lamed looks like, well, I think it looks like the eastern portion of Texas, if you just took that part. And I think you can see it in your bulletin and, and see that I'm absolutely right on that. Uh, it is the eastern portion of Texas. Uh, so anyway, um, our, our two stanzas today bring us to the center of, of Psalm 119, bring us to the absolute middle of it. And I mean that literally the middle of it and also metaphorically the middle of that. And I say that because um, you, you can think of, of Psalm 119 kind of like um, it begins uh, on a mountaintop and it kind of goes down into this valley and then in the middle, you begin to make your way back up out of the valley. And we are today right in the middle. So we're going to see ourselves go into the valley with the first stanza we look at. And then we're going to come back out or begin coming back up uh, out with the second stanza that we look at today. So, uh, so we're going to begin with just reading the first stanza, uh, beginning in verse 81. So follow along there, and then we'll read the second one later when we get to it. Um, Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the entirety of this beautiful psalm. Thank you for the encouragement it has been to us in past years. And as we focus on these two stanzas today, please enlighten our minds and delight our hearts in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me just ask you right from the start, right? We're going to get right to this. Um, imagine, if you will, that... God's Word, that, they, that these holy scriptures were, were not in a language that you could understand, right? E even if it was read out loud to you, you, you wouldn't be able to know what it, what, it, what it means, what any of it is, right? Imagine if you had no access to God's Word. Would that make any difference in your life today? Any difference in, in your life this week, this year, 
the way you speak or live, where you go, what you do, how you think through things, would it make any difference? Now, I, I hope so, but, but I also hope if, if, if not, my, my, my hope and my prayer is that God will work through Psalm 119 today and that the Holy Spirit will stir up within you today, uh, just renew within you a love for God's Word that is going to pour out and you, you spending time in His Word uh, again, or continue to do so if you already do. So let's, let's get into this. Um, Psalm 119 is this epic poem that is about how amazing God's Word is, right? If you just have a cursory understanding of it, that's what you know. It's about God's Word and about loving it. And, and yet, in these first few verses that we're looking at today, you can feel the downward lament of a man who is at the end of himself, right? I mean, look at it. The, he says, my soul longs for your salvation. He says, my, my eyes long for your promise. He says, how long must your servant endure? And we see all these things that his, his adversaries have done to him. Now, way back in verse 67, before what we read today, he confessed that his affliction that he was experiencing was, was a result of his own sin. It was because he had gone astray, and he understood it that way. And, and yet, it's, it's been a while since verse 67, and we get here, and, and there's no cause given. He's just got these enemies. He, he's dealing with these things. Life is not going well for him, and, and it's not a, a result of his, specifically a result of his sin, uh, right? He's facing these enemies, and in his weariness, he, he is simply asking Yahweh to, to help. And, and so you're starting to understand uh, for all the laments we've done this summer, right, all the psalms we've happened upon that are just laments, we're seeing it again even in Psalm 119 today. Um, and, and as we get through this, most of this is really easy to understand, right? Um, verse 83, though, that's a little bit odd. Sometimes we don't, we don't really know what phrases or words mean. My, my, my father, uh, Henry, I don't know if I've ever told you his name, Henry, uh, he, he grew up on a farm in, in southeast Missouri, kind of in that little boot hill, I think they call it. Uh, and yet he raised his own children in, the, in Houston, Texas, right? Very different location, different experience. Uh, and as we all do, he carried his childhood vocabulary with him in, into adulthood. And I remember one day when uh, my two brothers and I, we'd done something awful. I can't remember what it is because we did so many awful things. But uh, something awful. And my dad was just furious at us. And we were all three there. Uh, in, the, in the midst of his, his yelling at us about whatever dumb thing we did came this phrase. He said, do you want me to clean your plow? Any of you recognize that phrase? All right. All farmy people are. All right. So, so my elementary school mind just, just cycled through instantly of every phrase I know and, and came to nothing before just making that confused dog face where you're like, what? Um, and, and being the youngest of, of the three, I, I didn't have a, a good, you know, a real good sense of when do you speak and when do you not, uh, when do you remain silent? And, and so... Without thought, I, I asked what all three of us were, were thinking, what does that even mean, right? Right in the middle of this, this really just yelling at us, and, and immediately you could see my dad's face, right? He still had that desire, like, I, I must stay mad because of what you've done, but clearly he had lost all resolve to continue down that path. Uh, kind of that, that glance away and the smile, and you're like, okay, we're going to be okay, I think. Um, and, and then just kind of that little laugh, uh, because of course, his city boys had no context for this farm phrase right here at all. He, he began to explain to us, and this is for you, so the rest of you can know this when someone throws his thread at you, right? Uh, plows would get mud and dirt on them, and then later on it would dry and be stuck on there. And he said you'd take something, usually metal, and hit it against the plow, and, and it would knock all the mud off. Are you any confirming this? He doesn't know what he's talking about, huh? 
Uh, so the idea was you just, you, you know, it's, it's a threat. And so now we're thinking, oh, okay, um, we're with you, but that doesn't sound so great. No, we do not want you to clean our plow. Uh, verse 83 is one of those like that, right? Every once in a while you come to these phrases in the Psalms or it, all throughout the Scripture, you're like, I don't know what that means. Uh, and, and so you can imagine, right, someone walks into your house and they plop down on your couch at the end of the day or your dorm room, whatever, uh, and, and they say, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. You might be thinking, is that, is that bad? Like, what do you, get out of here. No, uh, right? It, it is bad. It's not a good thing. The idea here is that in an unused wineskin, typically people would hang them up in their home and the smoke would get up there. And, and because it was unused, it was, there was no liquid in it at all. It became shriveled and, and brittle and, and uh, from, the, from the fire in the house, making it both just gross and useless, useless and just falling apart. It's, um, it, it's more like phrases we use that are kind of the equivalent Roughly the equivalent are things like just, I'm exhausted, or I'm, I'm beat down, I'm just spent, I'm done. We, the things we say like that, that's what he's saying. He's just at the end of himself, right? Here he is at the bottom of the valley, and, 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 and still though, even at the end of himself right here, we, we can see this, this flicker of, of expectation is, is still there as he says, you know, I, I hope in your word. Right? I am absolutely spent, but Lord, I, I hope in your word. And, and we're going to see that throughout this. Now, now verse 84 is, is interesting because verse 84, this might be hard to believe, this is the first verse in the entire psalm that doesn't mention God's word using one of the, the oh, 10, 11 synonyms that we've seen, right? Precepts and law and all these different things, right? There, there's no reference to God's word. Uh, 83 straight verses he went making mention of God's word. Uh, this is a longer streak than Joe DiMaggio. This, this is crazy how long, and this is the first time it ever breaks here. Uh, this is also begins this section that outlines what his enemies have done to him. You see it there, verse 84, they persecuted him. Verse 85, they have dug pits for him. At 87, they, they've nearly killed him. Uh, and, and maybe it's not significant, but I, I, I found it interesting anyway. In verse 87, where, where we read, if you look at it, it says, they, they have almost made an end of me on earth. In, in Hebrew, instead of on earth, it's, it's literally in the earth. Uh, and, and here's what I love about that, right? If you look back to 85, they have dug pits for them, him and hoping to kill him. They literally want to make an end of him in the earth, right? I just love when you start seeing these details match up like that. Um, now, now, what we don't know here regarding his enemies is who are they? Who are these people? What we do know is, is their character. He, he describes them as being insolent, right? Again, not a phrase we use or word we use very often, but it means they are prideful, that they are rude, that they are arrogant individuals. We, we also know from verse 85 that unlike the, the psalmist himself, that they do not live according to God's law. Now, who are these people, right? And I, and I know we don't know specifically, but even in general, right, is he talking about fellow Israelites or is he talking about Babylonians and, 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 you know, or someone, some other nation? And, and we don't know, but we, we, we do know what it is like to live among prideful people who are often rude, who don't live according to God's word, don't we? Our experience of, of living among the insolent, right, who, who do not live according to God's word, and, and, and this might include, sure, atheists and human secularists and Muslims and, and things of that nature, but it, uh, it, it might also heartbreakingly include many who profess to be Christians as well who do not live according to God's word, don't even desire to. 
how would you categorize yourself? I mean, sometimes I just read this and I think, okay, like, who are these people? Who are the insulin in my life? Without wondering, like, what would someone say about me? Is this someone who lives according to, to God's word? And I don't mean perfectly. I just mean where you see, is, is that what their, their aim is? Their pursuit? Now, now be encouraged by verse 87 here where we learn that even in the midst of, of these enemies, even in the midst of afflictions and possibly death, the, the psalmist does not forsake God's word, right? No matter what's going on. Oh, how we need to learn this. The, the psalmist would not allow his life situation to deter his commitment to obedience to God's Word. See, this is huge for our, our, our era we live in, actually, because most, most habitual sin is tied closely to stress in your life, uh, whether it be gluttony or pornography or just complaining, whatever it might be, right? You're, you're, you're stressed, you're exhausted, and, and you turn to that sin as, as a release, as an escape, as, as some sort of way of dealing with the stress in your life, and it's wrong, and it's sin, but, but that's usually what's, what's happening with habitual sin anyway. Be aware of this, right? As God's children, that we need to be aware of this, right? Stressful times just the natural sinful bent is going to drive you or it's going to make you want to go that way sometimes. We've got to fight against that. Instead, let, us, let it drive us to, to fellowship with, with others who can encourage us. Let it drive us to, to times of prayer with the Lord and just telling Him exactly what you're feeling at the moment and the temptations you're facing. You know, or, or like the psalmist here, in this, you know, let it drive us to, to the Scriptures that it can comfort us, that it can encourage us to to, to walk away from sin. That's where it must drive us. Charles Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist, I think he would have called himself just Baptist at the time, uh, anyway, calls this, this cough stanza uh, the midnight of Psalm 119. And he, and he says so because as far as the rest of the psalm goes, this is a dark place in it. This is where we, we see the lament. But he also said this, he said, even in the blackness, stars shine out and then the last verse gives promise of the dawn, right? The shining star, the promise of the dawn he's talking about is there in verse 88. Uh, look at it in your Bibles. It says, in, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep your testimonies, keep the testimonies of your, your mouth. Give me life. What's that mean? What's, what's he asking for here? He knows that obedience to God's law does, does not create life, but that, that life comes only from the grace of God, and, and thus obedience to God's word grows out of the grace of God. He, he, says, he says there very specifically that it is the steadfast love, right? God's steadfast love that gives him life. Now, if you've been here long enough to be through many of the psalms, you know that we see this phrase, steadfast love, over and over and over against the psalm. It's scattered everywhere. Um, It's the Hebrew word hesed, which is one of the Hebrew words hopefully most of you know because we always draw attention to this, uh, meaning God's love, meaning his faithful love, his loyal love, his covenant love for his covenant people. We who are in Christ can trust God because we, we can trust his love for us is the most certain thing in all of existence. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's easy to obey authorities who, who you know are both wise and 
who love you and desire what's best for you, right? Like, like a loving parent, but, but, but even more so, right? Uh, a perfectly wise and, and perfectly holy and perfectly loving to his people, God, we can trust. That's the steadfast love of the Lord we can trust. Now listen, Christian apathy towards God's divine word is... is it's a spiritual epidemic of sorts, I, and I, I don't say that to, to guilt you, right? I'm preaching to the choir, not the choir, but the choir, uh, in, in some regard. Uh, so I don't say that to guilt you, but, but God willing to, to drive you to, uh, to pray like we, we see in this stanza, right? Because maybe you, you need God to give you life in Christ, right? Maybe, maybe you don't have a relationship with the Lord that way, or, or maybe you, you do, right? You love God, you do, but... If you're honest, just not like you want to, not like you hope to. Maybe you need God to, to, to give you life so that you'll experience sensitivity to, sensitivity to his word and, and begin to delight in his word or, or delight in it again. And, and through the Holy Spirit, begin to, to keep his word more and, and more so. So here we are, right? This, this brings us to the ends of our cough stat, stanza uh, to the bottom of the valley, if you will, of Psalm 119. And, and so let's, let's, let's go forward. We're going to read beginning in verse 89, the second, the Lamed one, right? Um, and, and we'll go forward there, right? We're going to make our first steps back up the mountain. And it says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your pre precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but... Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Do you see the change of tone here? <clears throat> right? Not, not radically so, but you see just a change of direction here as these first steps moving out of the valley. You can hear it there in verse 89, right? Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. <clears throat> One of the things that I, I, I hear often in modern society that, if I'm honest, just kind of grates on me is when people critique uh, biblical teaching as simply being antiquated. It's old, right? How could you possibly think that? It's just old, right? It's, it's 2021. How could you possibly still believe, right? And then something about marriage or sexuality or what, whatever it might be, right? But you don't ever hear anyone saying, you know, it's 2021. Do you seriously believe gravity is relevant? Uh, it's, it's, you know, the... listen, if, if the creator of the universe and all that's in it is, if the ultimate divine authority says this is how it is, this is what's true, this is what's reality. Time doesn't wash it away. God's word is, is not a sandcastle on, the, on a Florida beach. It's, it's, the, it's more solid than the most solid rock in the entire existence. That's the point of these first few verses here. If you, if you look at them, they all point to the, the eternalness of God's word. It, it speaks to God's people for, for all time, right? Martin Luther once said of the, the scriptures, the, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern, it is eternal. 
more importantly, our Lord taught that God's word is eternal and everlasting, right? When in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And hopefully this is not a new concept to you, right? Because every single week after the reading of the scripture, we recite Isaiah 40, verse 8, right? Every single week, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. It's eternal. And so God's word, his moral law is is eternal. That's a fact, a reality. But in this stanza, I I want us to see three things before we're done here. Three things, and there's probably tons more, but three things, right? That that God's word has done for the psalmist and that God's word does for us as well. And the first one is this, that God's word rescues us. The psalmist has faced affliction and enemies and what has got him through all this? He says it there in verse 92. Look at it. He says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now we know it is God who rescues him and yet here he is pointing specifically to God's word as the means by which God keeps him from perishing, keeps him from wandering away from the Lord keeps him from just giving up in the end. And it's, it's not clear here, right, whether the, the scriptures gave him direction and therefore he didn't run into great sins or if, uh, if God's word called him to repent of sin and, and therefore called him back or, or if it simply reminded him that, that of God's great love for him, right? In these moments of how could God love me and I'm going through the things I'm going through. And yet his word calls him back to say, look, God does love you. It could be any of those things. In my Christian walk, one of the most encouraging things I hear is when, and typically it's older believers, hopefully each new generation of older believers say the same thing, but uh, but when I hear them speak about how reading Scripture and, and memorizing passages and meditating on God's Word and sitting under the preaching of the Word week after week, how, how these things, the, these ways of being in God's Word have guided their life, <clears throat> guided them in wise ways, how it has called them back to the Lord when they've, when they've wandered away, how it has sustained them through bouts of depression and anxiety and great suffering of all sorts, just the, the general ups and downs of the Christian life. We need the Word in our life. Now, I, I can't help but wonder if, if the biggest reason so many Christians today feel distant from the Lord or some depression, not saying all of it, but some of our depression and, and just general being discouraged or being unmotivated to even pursue holiness, if it's just the simple fact that we'll give our time to Netflix and video games and social media and watching sports and podcasts and every other mind-numbing entertainment, which aren't evil things, but we simply don't make time to be in God's Word. It's like we've lost an appetite for it in that regard. I find this when I'm eating healthy or not, when I begin to eat healthy, at times it'll be like, oh, this actually tastes good. I enjoy healthy food and it's great. And yet when I find myself back in nasty food or bad for me food, like you forget how good that stuff can be. I mean, you need to be in the Word even if it's not what you desire in the moment. That's how we get it. Uh, let me use the words of the English Puritan Thomas Manton to encourage you. He says, speaking of the stanza, he says, Let us be much in hearing, reading, studying, and obeying this word that makes us everlasting happy. Now you can 
you know, argue his terminology there, but the idea is there's joy to be had in God's word. Now, the second thing we, we see, um, thing to see, right, God's eternal word has done for the psalmist and, and will do for us also is it gives him life. I mean, look at there in, in verse 93. I, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And, and we understand that. That's a phrase we use, maybe not in the exact same way he uses it here, but we use it, right? This, this past week, I, I went on a bicycle ride with some guys, and, and, and Laura later asked me, so how was it? And my immediate response, without, you know, putting it through any filter, was, like, was just, it was, it was life-giving. It was just a great experience with them. And, and sometimes we, we, we say similarly, right? It was, it was refreshing, we, we say this about restful vacations, about great music we hear, or conversations that just energize our lives, and, and hopefully we say that about worship and prayer and, and Sabbath, rest, and slow moments in, in God's Word as well. Now, remember his, his situation here. He's in affliction. He is downcast, or to use our, our, our new favorite phrase, right? He is like a wineskin in the smoke. Uh, we need to start using that. I, I would like to see that make its way to just normal conversation. Uh, but he's like a, a wineskin in the smoke. And, and <clears throat> throughout Psalm 119, he has asked God to revive him, right? To, uh, eight times, in fact, throughout this psalm, he has, he has prayed this, Lord, give me life. Give me life, give me life, give me life. I'm not going to keep count. But eight times he has said this, like we saw in verse 88 earlier. But here at 93, it's, it's different. It's not like the others. Because in verse 93, he's not asking God to give him life. He is praising Yahweh, saying that through your word, through your precious word, you have given me life. This has been an answer for renewal for, for him, right? Are, are you praying for God to do that in your own life, for your family, to, to revive you? When... You know, if you are, then, then saturate yourself in His Word and don't just read it, live according to it. See what it's calling you to. That, that, that's the point of Him saying, right? I'll never forget your precepts. He didn't mean just, right, that I tried to memorize them and failed to do it, right? Forgetting when we see it in the Scripture, this implies disobedience. We, we hear it all the time, right? We, in our regular life, I mean, why didn't you take out the trash? Well, I forgot, and, and you know, our first instance thing is like, well, that's not disobedience, right? We, yes, it is. It's, it's not rebellious, right, disobedience, but it still is to just forget to do so. And, and so let us spend time in God's Word and, and remember it as, as our way of life, right, directing us. Now, the, the, the third thing that God's Word does for him and for us is, is it rightly identifies us. Some of us, uh, Right? Throughout Scripture, we see that it identifies people as, as sinners, right? It, it identifies people as the enemy of God, but, but it also identifies those who are in Christ Jesus as, as children of God, as, as fellow heirs with Christ, as temples of the Holy Spirit, our, our bodies, right? He, here, here in verse 94, we are identified as belonging to God when he says, uh, says to God, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Remember, the, the insolence he spoke of in verse 85, they, they do not belong to God, and the proof of that is that they don't, they don't care to live according to God's word. It's not a matter of like how great, but they don't even care. They have no interest in it. But, but here he makes the point that he has sought to live according to God's word, and so, and so to God he says, I am asking you to save me because, well, I am yours. 
What a declaration. To, to say that to God, I, I am yours. Uh, Christian, do, do you know that you can say that to God? God, I am yours. You possess me. This side of the cross, we, we know this reality even more so, right? As 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19 through 20 teaches us that we have been bought with a price. And the payment is, is Christ upon the cross. Our, our sins have been paid for. It's, it's, it's no small thing to be possessed by the living God. Now I know some of you have lived difficult lives. lives. You, you've not been loved by people that should love you. Maybe parents. Um, you feel friendless at times. You feel lonely, like you just don't fit in at times. Listen, if your faith is in Christ, it, it doesn't matter, even if every soul on planet Earth hated you, because God will still love you. Because you are His. At a great price, He has purchased you. He will not let you go. Christians, we, we need to embrace this sort of vocabulary in our prayer life. Lord, I am yours. To say that boldly and confidently and know that it's reality. Let, let that be our, our primary identity in life, that I belong to the Lord. And so the final verse, 96 here, communicates simply that God's word is greater than all the good and perfect things that he's seen and experienced. Right? He's just saying this, this is where it's greater than everything. Um, so so that's, that's where we stop this year. We'll pick up again next year. But um, where do these two stanzas of this epic poem land us? First, as God's covenant people, we, we must be committed to knowing and seeking to obey his word. Not to earn salvation, not to earn his love, but because we have salvation and because we, we trust the Lord's love for us and therefore we trust that his commandments are for our good. They do not mean us harm. Let me tell you uh, an odd story that has stuck with me since I, I first heard it. <clears throat> there was this, I mean, adorable couple in their 70s at a church Laura and I belonged to in, in Dallas years ago, and, and they told us how they, they grew up together and knew each other well, and they were in love at, at a very young age, and they, um, <clears throat> you know, were kind of dating for a couple years, and uh, to our ears, this is going to sound a little bizarre, but they were, I believe it was 15 years old, and, and bluntly speaking, they said they, they desired to have sex, and, and yet they were so committed to God's word, to his ways, that they, they, they would not do that. It, eventually, they, they had this older friend of theirs drive them up to Oklahoma because apparently their laws are a lot looser than Texas as far as getting married without parental permission, and they got married to each other. And I'm not saying this was the wisest choice. Uh, they could have continued to abstain and glorify the Lord as well. But I, I've always been impressed that here are these two 15-year-olds wrestling through this, this issue in their life, this um, temptation. And, and they're so committed to God's word that, that when they burned with passion, as, as 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of, they, they didn't just ignore God's word like, like so many do today. But, but instead, they did what 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says it, right? For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And again, I, I'm not encouraging you to run off and get married. Teenagers, college students, this is not a, you know, how to do this uh, instruction manual, but uh, don't hear that. But, but it's an encouraging story simply because they cared so much uh, about being obedient to God's word that that's the thing they were wrestling with. They cared. I, I long for us as a, a church to be people who are just deeply committed to God's Word, even when it's difficult. 
even when it seems impractical for the way we want to do things. Let me share just one more story, and we'll finish up. He, he, uh, this guy might still do this today. I, I don't know for sure, but at least some years ago, a religious studies professor named Bart Ehrman uh, began his introductory uh, religion classes at UNC by asking this question to his students. He said, how many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? And some people's arms would go up, right, to, uh, to, do, to signal this. Now, now, it might be interesting to know that uh, Professor Ehrman himself does, does not believe this, not a Christian, does not acknowledge uh, the Bible as, as God's word. Uh, but typically, some would raise their hands, right, uh, that they do believe this is God's inspired word. And, and then uh, he'd ask a couple things, and he would ask this question. He'd say, so how many of you uh, have read all of the Harry Potter books? And a little confused about what his point was. Um, many acknowledged they'd read all seven Harry Potter books, books uh, those same people. And, and so then he asked these, these Christian students, how many of you have read all the Bible? And his point became pretty clear real quick, right? So it's, it's a shame job. Now, now, now his, you know, his point is this, is, right? Harry Potter's a great story to read. There's no shame in doing that. But, but if you believe that this, this Bible, this, the, the scriptures, that it's actually from God, that this is his inspired word for us, doesn't it make sense that you would invest time into reading it? And I get it. Some of us are sitting here with a pang of guilt right now, right? For some of you, it might just be conviction. My only question is, what are you going to do with that? I'm not interested in you feeling guilty. But I am interested in seeing us, us change our ways to spend time in God's Word. Maybe you've read all the Bible before and, and you just have no desire to read it again. I, I've been there. You kind of think I've done that. Check that one off. So to you, I encourage you to read all of Psalm 119. Go read the Gospel of God, John. Go read Philippians, right? And, and remember why you love God's Word. You do. Let, let the Scriptures be the means of God's grace to you that, that they are. Let, let this Word be life-giving to your soul. Right? So if that's the one takeaway this week, it is not to feel guilty. And if you, if you miss a day reading, don't feel guilty. That's not the point. It's it's to remember that you love this and you need this and it's good for you. It gives life to your soul. Let's pray. Father, we cannot make our, our hearts to love your word. But we want to love your word. We want to delight in them. We want to. And, and as an under-shepherd of your people, I'm asking you this morning, Lord, to, to make us people committed to your word daily. And through that, please stir up within us an obsession with reading and studying and meditating and being encouraged by and living according to your holy word. Please do the work in our hearts we cannot do. And I ask you to do this because like, like all your people, Lord, I, I've been lost, I've been found, but now forevermore I am yours. In the glorious name of Christ our Savior, I pray. Amen.